and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. The initial outbreak of COVID-19 in China and its subsequent global spread led to a significant marring of China's image as a global leader in January 2020. By late February, however, the COVID-19 outbreak within China had been seemingly contained. Since then, China has engaged in a concerted campaign of global public COVID-19 mask diplomacy. In this podcast, we will discuss China's so-called mask diplomacy, including its uses, its goals, and its potential outcomes. Joining us today on the podcast as our guest will be Brian Wong. Brian Wong is a Rhodes Scholar-elect from Hong Kong and a current Master's in Philosophy and Politics candidate at Wolfson College, University of Oxford. Brian previously graduated with a first-class honors BA in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics from Pembroke College, Oxford, as a Quark Scholar. Brian is a frequent contributor to Time, South China Morning, South China Morning Post, Fortune, and the Hong Kong Economic Journal. Mr. Wong's recent piece, China's Mass Diplomacy, published in The Diplomat, will serve as our guide to our discussion today. We hope you enjoy. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you. Pleasure. So we'll start off with the first question of today, which is pretty simple. What exactly is China's COVID-19 mass diplomacy? What does that mean? What does it look like? Sure. So uh, mass diplomacy, I think, broadly refers to a meta strategy or a series of strategically coordinated measures adopted by China in through leveraging uh, dissemination of distribution of medical resources in doing so, uh, thereby effectively inculcating or building ties with nations whilst also fostering international goodwill and ultimately developing some degree of interdependence between China and the countries to which these medical supplies are offered. And I think the important thing to note about this is it's neither, uh, as some folks like to portray, a, a pernicious, insidious act of, oh gosh, unprecedented uh, uh, insubordination or indeed uh, some degree of infiltration of countries. I think that's quite uncharitable, but also concurrently simplistic. But it's of course also just not an altruistic charity and purely philanthropically driven campaign on a part of China. So I think the ideological dimension of the mass diplomacy project must be recognized, but it shouldn't be spun into this toxic and hyper sinophobic claim that is you know an insidious attempt on a part of the Chinese government to whitewash its alleged wrongs in this sense. So Brian, could you give us maybe some specific examples that um, in, in terms of China donating med- medical supplies or exporting different um, or maybe even giving medical advice like what is one specific example that you could give us or multiple? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, if you take a look at Serbia in mid-March, for instance, I think it's what I call a classic case in point of mass diplomacy, where basically it started with a Serbian president, uh, as far as I remember, uh, calling for help or requesting support from China because of the, the the perception that the EU basically left it out to dry. And then China stepped in by sending both masks and medical equipment, but also other forms of indirect medical support in the forms of personnel uh, to Serbia approximately a week later. So that's one thing that happened in terms of a concrete example, I suppose. But I don't think, obviously, Serbia is not just the only country that's benefiting out of this, right? There are also other states that are affected or potential beneficiaries. Italy is another example. Uh, and that's why you can see in Italy, I think, quite a clear polarization in mass attitudes 
versus elite attitudes towards China, that whilst China is quite positively received amongst masses, particularly in the worst afflicted regions in a COVID outbreak, uh, the reception towards China amongst the elites was far more lukewarm. And that's only understandable, right? Because if you have effectively what, what happened here was a, an external sovereign entity coming into your country and doing your job better than you're supposed to do, and obviously with historical pent-up frustrations between Italian elites and politicians and the Chinese political circles, that backdrop makes for uh, a massive divergence or dichotomy between those who directly benefit from mass diplomacy, i.e. the civilians and the crowd and the public there, and the rest of the, the political system, including the politicians, but also including other folks that are ideologically or practically opposed to Chinese presence within the country. So I think these are two tests cases or examples that you might want to look into just to see if there are possible comparative differences and insights to be learned or acquired through making these comparisons. Great. Um, so I'll go ahead and ask our next question, which is, in your diplomat article, you kind of outlined core features of China's mass diplomacy. Could you speak a little bit about these core features um, and maybe explain a little bit more on the purpose behind China's um, mass diplomacy efforts? Yeah, sure. So I think I'll start with the core features, first of all. And I think if I remember correctly, and this is indeed the analytical framework that I've proposed, there are three core dimensions or three core aspects to China's mass diplomacy that I think is worth noting. The first is just the emphasis upon the distribution of important resources in order to secure popular buy-in and support from the crowd. And I'm going to get onto a modification of this thesis in a bit based upon exactly my earlier reply to your question. And I've modified my, my thesis since publishing or writing that paper or article, but I'll explain why I made a change of mind there in just a bit. The second dimension is the attempt to build some degree of interdependence and also uh, dependence networks between China and the recipient countries, where that be in, say, Italy and Serbia and other prospective beneficiaries in Southeast Asia, actually. Uh, which we can chat about in terms of the test case of Vietnam versus China. And then the final dimension is the moralizing and normative dimension of the diplomatic project, right? Where China effectively is framing the distribution of medical supplies is both indicative of and often an epitome of the merits of its own political model. So let's get onto them one by one, starting with the idea of gaining buy-in and also support from various parties. So the, the broad gist here is there is no better way in securing support and recognition, especially when, as a country, you're coming under a lot of political pressure for your international venture, CF, the resistance towards AIB and OBOR from the Western system or the Bretton Woods Agreement, effectively, and that cluster of nations. There's no better way of securing buy-in from these countries, or at least member states that are close to these countries, than aiding them in times of desperate need. And as we can see, whether it be Italy, around which in March, I think, its peaks or its cases were, were semi-peaking, or at least rapidly on a rise in early March and late February, and then got to a, a peak effectively in late March. Now, I'm not an epidemiologist. I might be wrong on this. I don't, I'd like you to fit check this. But when you look at cases like Italy, that's when the medical supply provision kicks in. Because by having the transmission and transfer of resources. What China effectively is doing here is decide that let's set aside all these 
high sounding business deals and perks you might have seen us in previously. Let's talk about saving your lives. And it is that particular framework of understanding master flow mystery through lenses of not even humanitarian aid, but as a sort of fraternity-esque or, or a semi-fraternal relationship that we're all allegedly brothers and sisters in that discourse or discursive framework. I think that's the overarching tone that China wanted to pitch when it started and embarked upon mass diplomacy. And it's shown to be somewhat effective. Now, in the article, obviously, I suggested that it was very effective in securing domestic and popular support in various entry points and also acting as de facto semi-distraction, but also legitimation or, uh, of its... Uh, ongoing ventures within these areas. But I think an addendum that I'll add to this, and that's a nuance I offered in my reply to the second question just then, is just that while securing buy-in is the idealized objective of mass diplomacy, in practice, the mass attitudes versus elite attitudes and how they have responded differentially towards mass diplomacy itself makes for an interesting research question. Because what you'll probably spot here is those individuals that are most systemically disenfranchised from the local government or the local political systems are also those with the comparatively greatest increases in favorability or, or some degree of amenability towards China as compared with those who are better in doubt. And I don't have the polls and stats to back this up, but it's definitely an aspect that's worth looking into if you're keen on mass diplomacy research and mass diplomacy literature because fundamentally right i think an interesting analogy here is to look at the reactions towards uh, china in japan in the aftermath of the 2011 earthquake uh in near well in north japan basically where the relief effort on a part of chinese emergency humanitarian uh, troops go heading towards Japan. And the aftermath of that, I believe, Sino-Japanese relations had a very brief but significant amelioration until it got you know, it deteriorated again as a result of Senkaku and various other disputes, and also the shrine, the Yasukuni shrine and all that. So it's worth drawing analogies here and thinking about how different segments of the population react and respond differently to the same stimulus here, being the case of masks, medical supplies and PPEs and all that. So that's the first dimension of mass diplomacy. I'm sorry if I'm ranting on a bit. Please cut me off if I am indeed saying too much. But a second dimension that's worth thinking about then is the sort of interdependence claim that I'm making. Now, just before we get into the intricacies here, a lot of folks tend to accuse China of fostering dependence through allegedly uh, debt, debt traps and all that. So the most commonly cited example is Sri Lanka, and the second most commonly cited example is Pakistan. I don't want to wade into the, the quagmire that is the debate over uh, One Belt, One Road, but I have a very good friend of mine, actually, who, who's uh, written, uh, or is rather writing a book on, uh, he's called Ike Freeman, and he's got a book on precisely the interaction between domestic structures and international politics when it comes to Obor. Now, that, that was a bit of a plug on his part, but what I wanted to highlight from that, though, is... There's obviously an element of fostering dependence in mass diplomacy, right? And to deny it would be simply naive. So, so you look at the way in which the sending out of medical supplies, the delivery of these supplies, the usage of particular companies, the setting of contacts with particular hospitals, the distribution of medical resources, sometimes not necessarily via the local government, but instead via China-endorsed and sanctioned organizations within these countries. All of these are methods through which China, I think, establishes greater 
uh, I wouldn't say policy level, but certainly greater discursive, symbolic, and uh, civil society presence within these countries. Now, let's not take it as a conspiracy. Let's not take it uh, to, get, to get us off the ground uh, as an intervention or an infringement upon sovereignty of these countries just yet, because I don't think there's concrete evidence to suggest that such dependence relations have been manipulated or exploited by China. I just don't think such evidence exists at the moment in terms of mass diplomacy. What is worth noting here is uh, bipolarization within European politics, where certain countries have rejected the entry of Chinese or rejected the offering of Chinese provision of aid. And as a result of that, it's unlikely that the structures I talked about just then would inculcate or take root in these countries. But in other states that have accepted medical supplies from China, you have indeed seen these institutional transformations in a grassroots level with closer synergy and collaboration and integration between uh, the domestic civil society, particularly philanthropic actors, and also medical health uh, services with the, the Chinese counterparts and Chinese collaborators. Why is this so important? Well, I think it's important because how these civil society or quasi-civil society actors, knowing how civil society works in China, how, because these actors and the synergy between them could well define uh, or outline a potential mode of diplomatic engagement in a post-COVID world between China and these states. And that is why, much like Kishore Mababani, I'm, I'm more optimistic than most with regards to how China is going to cope with a diplomatic fallout and the aftermath of this particular outbreak, largely, but not entirely, of course, because of the goodwill it's fostered within institutions through mass diplomacy. And that ties me on to the final point concerning the moralizing feature or the moralizing nature of the discourse articulated by China. Now, I personally come from a political theoretical background and a more sociological background. So when I talk about diplomacy and international relations, I like to think of it from a more philosophical or at least sociological framework. And at least through my lenses, the way I see Chinese diplomacy here and mass diplomacy here is, it just gives you a very strong vibe, if you would pardon the, uh, the slang there, a strong vibe that China is gunning for a higher order critique, a more substantive critique of the Western liberal logic. The whole symbolism of, look, we can get your resources fast. We can get your resources efficiently. And we've got resources now delivered to your very homes, despite the fact that, you know, we have different political systems and we're not a democracy. All of these are testament to the very fact that the Western order and the Western liberal order is failing. Now, now I, I said that message or slogan just in a Scottish accent, not necessarily because I think Chinese diplomats speak like Scots, but it's instead because I want to highlight that's the very message that uh, Chinese diplo diplomats and the foreign uh, service certainly are trying to articulate with what they're doing with medical aid and supplies there. We're not that you know, successful. We're not the end of history thesis as uh, Fukuyama so gleefully put it in his original uh, book has come to an end. I do not know. I think it's too early to tell. But what is definitely for sure or relatively certain is it's not just about delivering masks here. It's also about delivering a wholesale package of faith of buy-in to political logic that is uniquely instantiated by the Chinese regime. So tying all of these features back into answering your, your question just then about why China is engaging in mass diplomacy, what the purpose is. Well, the purpose is, uh, if you would, under a defensive realist framework, it's somewhat defensive, right? It's to defend itself against the allegations that it's doing nothing. It's doing absolutely nothing, allegedly. To, to cope or deal with the fallout and the aftermath 
of its initially inept handling of the crisis. That, that's the defensive take on it. The offensive take, of course, is, ah, China's using it to establish, or at least entrench greater influence within these regions. I think neither of these approaches gets the picture right. To me, it's, it's far more fluid in the sense that even if you look at China and why the Chinese government is distributing or delivering aid, it would be a bit childish, uh, if not ludicrous, to say, oh, Xi Jinping himself authorizes delivery of masks to all of these countries because it's part of his China dream. I think what's more interesting a take and probably more nuanced a take is that mass diplomacy embodies the softer, quasi-dovish arm of the diplomacy within Chinese politics. That's trying to say, both within internal discourse and also at large, that, hey, look, guys, whilst we are indeed fighting an upcoming Cold War, an ongoing trade war, and indeed, according to Donald Trump, the best ever trade war fought, um, not going to do a Trump impression again, even though that's indeed concurrent to what's happening right now, there is room and there is a way out for those who are keener on soft or sharp power, to borrow from Nye, sharp power, as opposed to blunt force, brute force, military power in winning back the hearts and minds of individuals. So you can see it as a hedging strategy, you can also see it as a diversification strategy, but that's how I personally would interpret it, as opposed to the reductive uh, analysis that I highlighted just then. There's also plausible, but probably not the correct interpretations of what's going on in China there. Well, that was a long answer. Sorry about that. No, that's okay, Brian. That was fantastic. I think I wrote a, um, I just finished writing a like 20 page paper on mass diplomacy. And I think you just did a way better job than I did in terms of analysis and, you know, five minutes of speaking than 20 pages of writing. So, um, but I do have a follow up question, Brian, if that's all right. Sure. So in terms of the three kind of focuses that you have underneath your framework of giving supplies uh, to, for buy-in from various parties, interdependence networks, and then moralization. All of these goals seem somewhat external to me. Um, and I'm wondering if that's, if, if that's the take that you get too, because I've been reading, um, just in the research I've read recently, is various like China scholars have taken the mass diplomacy as both external, but also an internal um, kind of defensive stance. I know uh, Elizabeth Economy at the Council on Foreign Relations says that the kind of aggressive diplomatic style that's been taken on by Chinese diplomats like during mass diplomacy is essentially to convince their own domestic population within China that they are fighting back against the West. And it's not necessarily just external, but also internal as well. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't know if you, how, how familiar are you with um, Greece, I think 2001, uh, no, 2011, I could be wrong though, but uh, Greece, G-R-I-E-S, wrote a paper on the bombing of the Belgrade embassy, the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. And in it, there was a lot of articulation and discussion of precisely how the defiant stance offered by China in the aftermath of the 1999 bombing, 99, sorry, bombing, was a precise attempt to, to reassure its own citizens and its own population that it's got this under control. And that's why the articulation of officially sanctioned nationalism isn't just, as I said just then, isn't just an articulation of an official stance. It's also through a boomerang effect with a feeding feedback loop via semi-foreign or, or semi-quasi-independent media outlets. It's a feedback system in which or through which, rather, the domestic population is, is convinced of the fact that the state is both, A, 
willing to resist against Western propagandistic efforts, or so they term it, and B, the state is strong, it is thriving, it is prospering, and C, uniquely in this particular case, it's not just about the state, it's also about uh, the, the claim that the Chinese people, in light of a lot of the ethnically motivated and ethnically centered criticisms and bigotry displayed towards them, in face of such adversities, the Chinese people could stand up strong. Now, I, I'm not saying this is how I read it, personally. I'm just saying these are the official messages that the state is spinning it, or the Chinese uh, media slash public relations department, uh, the propaganda department, it is terming or framing it as. And an interesting parallel, I suppose, is if you look at how China has treated uh, military exercises in South China Sea uh, in a similar way. So, so a lot of folks often interpret uh, the exercises of, of military fleet and sending of troops and also the, 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 well, the patrolling of the seas by Chinese fleet as a sign of Chinese projection of militarism, yada, yada, yada. But what they perhaps neglect is it's also pressure valve, right? Because where grassroots nationalism rises and rises and rises and bubbles in China, so you saw that around the turn of the decade, so 10 years ago, and now, there would always be a need on the part of the state to curtail such nationalism to some extent. Because China, especially the Chinese central administration, is wary of letting excessive nationalism fester without control, without restraint. And that's why, you know, internet forums like the Tianya Luntan, uh, going back to the late 2000s, was heavily censored, uh, not because it was politically incorrect, but it was politically uber-correct. And, and the Chinese state is in many ways more moderate than uh, the Chinese population when it comes to genuine uh, aggressive nationalism, to borrow from Zhao's framework, so Zhao Suishan's framework in analyzing Chinese nationalism. And all of that analysis is to say that there's always an inevitably internal dimension to political communication in Chinese diplomacy. To overlook that would be a mistake. But on the other hand, I would also be cautious of overstating the internal dimension and aspect here. Because if you think about it, if you really want to reassure your own citizens that China is fighting back, there are plenty of other arenas in which this could play out. And indeed, Hong Kong, for instance, is not one of them. Uh, which is why the current incendiary rhetoric adopted by a lot of those in the movement, in my genuine opinion, would do nothing but further escalate the situation. But that's an aside. But if we look at specifically the question of mass diplomacy, then I, I completely agree with you, Zachary, that there is both an external and an internal dimension to how the diplomatic project has been enacted and implemented. Okay, wow. I have a. Oh. I have a question. Um, yeah. So we've talked about some core features of mask diplomacy, and we've we've talked about some of the dimensions. How do mm. these compare and contrast with previous maybe soft power moves made by China? Is this is this much different from China's normal aid diplomacy? Do you have any examples in mind when it comes to comparisons that we can chat about? China and Africa. Ah, great. Well, firstly, in that case, I would dispute your uh, claims, uh, Zachary, that uh, it's soft power. I think it's sharp power. So I'm going to start with a sharp power versus soft power pushback, and then I'm going to move on to doing some comparisons there. So I think when it comes to a lot of Chinese investment, overall AIB and all that, it, it's realistically just a bundle of powers, right? So it's not really just purely uh, what we call hard, hard power. It's, it's indeed not hard power. It's not military. But there's a lot of economic 
elements embedded within it. And some of that you might term uh, sharp power, where both through transforming media landscapes and also altering the business climates within these countries, China seeks to project its influence by, by establishing independent spheres of influence that is in these overseas territories, or, or what it sees as overseas territories, what are actually independent sovereign states, to be entirely clear there. And this is effectively how sharp power works. And you also have soft power dimensions to it, inevitably. So I, I do wonder, for instance, what you guys' thoughts about Confucius or Confucian Institutes are, because some scholars uh, myself well I, i'm not a scholar but some scholars and myself included amongst potential uh, hot takers our take is that it is probably a sign of sharp power but others are more optimistic about it they say ah oh, it's about fostering understanding so carrie brown's take on a confucian institutes is, is is gold and i would recommend anyone who's keen on understandings of china's projection of its culture uh, and interpreting it as a sign of soft power but not sharp power i would highly recommend uh, anyone who's keen on that discussion to look at Kerry's work which is excellent by the way but what i wanted to say here is if you look at these investment projects or china's investment in africa there tend to be two differences between them and mass diplomacy and the first is just the nature and the time frame of the goods delivery Recognize a lot of investments, especially loans and some more long-term low condition or semi-unconditional loans that China is granting to African countries, doesn't have a very immediate time frame or timeline of return. So you're looking at, at best, three years, five years down the line, maybe a decade. And that's also why a lot of critics of OBOR have pointed out that the moment you allow governments with a lack of transparency to sign on to these to sign on to these projects is the moment when you allow basically the political elites in these countries to make what they term or characterize as shady deals with China uh, with no accountability or no way of holding them to account. You can't do that with mass diplomacy for the simple fact that A, the crisis is now. <laughs> uh, there's no point in getting masks three years down the line. Even Internet Explorer wouldn't deliver masks so slowly. Although Internet Explorer could probably deliver, would only get you the masks, I think, one year after it was posted. Sorry, I thought that was funny. Uh, the <laughs> second reason is really, you know, the, the, the whole point of masks is that it, both in its symbolism and also in its practical usage and effects, it must be consumed quickly. So medical supplies, testing kits, personnel, masks, all of these have immediate returns that are visible and clearly, clearly, you know, fundamentally apparent to folks on the ground. And that's very different from the investment that we're talking about when it comes to Chinese investment in Africa. The second distinction that I think we can note is when it comes to thinking about mass diplomacy, the moralizing dimension is far more apparent and far sharper than, than in the case of AIB. Because whilst you still have the, oh, we're all brothers and sisters, kumbaya rhetoric in, in a case of uh, the investment in Africa, the, the element of that moralizing solidarity is far stronger in a case of mass diplomacy. So I think these are the two differences that we ought to bear in mind, if that's helpful. That is sorry for that really bad joke. I realize it's a bit cringeworthy <laughs> and probably reflects my age more than anything else. But back in the days, it was quite a funny joke. <laughs> I use Chrome, don't worry. Um, Amanda, do you want to go with uh, the next question? Yeah, sure. Um, so the next question is, 
I guess, can you contextualize mass diplomacy? You've talked a lot about um, like how China might be using mass diplomacy as like a response to Western power dynamics kind of previously established, but can you contextualize mass diplomacy in terms of China's relationships with Western countries prior to COVID-19, um, Europe, and maybe even like the United States? Right. Okay. So I think we need to break this down to different regions, really. Uh, so Europe is very different from or relations with Europe are very different from relations with the US. In terms of Europe, obviously China's hit a bit of a, a roadblock in terms of Huawei and 5G, but also in terms of, generally speaking, expanding its corporate or business interests within Europe. Uh, UK is probably the most pro-China country amongst the, the large states of Europe. But then you, and I'm going to get onto this around 10 seconds or so, but then you also have other facets to the situation in Europe that are perhaps more charitable or more favorable to China. So when it comes to large states or states that I think hold a say within Europe and indeed previously for the UK, the European Union, but not so anymore. So, so I think in these cases, Mass diplomacy is at best, at best, a bargaining tool or a chip. It is a way for China to flex its muscles to say, hey, we can also get here or get into your, your sphere, your presence, even if you yourselves don't want us in your country. Fine. That, that means nothing to us. We're still going to be here knocking on your doors and you're more than welcome to join. So I think the case in point on you're more than welcome to join is Germany, where Xi Jinping, indeed, uh, as I pointed out in the article, made deliberate decisions to call some leaders, but not others. And it was no coincidence that those leaders that he, that he called were indeed the ones that he dialed personally, right? As opposed to just contacted by diplomats. The second aspect to this is, I think when you're looking at the idea of uh, the other Europe, or I don't want to use the term the other Europe, but dual track development, as we all know, the European Union doesn't have a homogenous rate or pace of development. There are countries that are left behind. The so-called Global South corresponding equivalent in Europe is the European South, or as some call it, the Mediterranean Europe. Italy is an example, and then some include the Balkans, even I think that's geographically, uh, that's geographically bastardizing geography. But some people also call that Mediterranean, even though it's not, technically not, but the Balkan Europe, uh, for instance. And these are countries that have clearly been left out of the European development project, whether it be because they don't have European Union membership, so that's some countries in the Balkans, or because they, even if they're in Europe, suffer from being on the lower tier or the lower track of the dual track development for demographic reasons, for lack of economically competitive resources, for the absence of factors reduction uh, relatively cheap, or indeed just because they lack historical and political wherewithal. Fine. China here plays a critical role in supplementing them. And that's always been the case. And I think this is, this is a role that has been all the more exemplified and amplified by Chinese mass diplomacy over the past few months. So that's Europe there. And I think how that plays out, well, my take is China would develop closer ties with half of Europe or a quarter or a third of Europe. And the other third or two thirds would become increasingly hostile to China. The interesting case or question is UK. I genuinely don't know what's going to happen with the UK. Because whilst it seems that Boris Johnson and a lot of Tories are becoming increasingly trenchantly anti-China in the rhetoric, it just strikes me as implausible to think that, given how important China is to the British economy, that they would turn to shunning it entirely. So what you're likely to see is probably more lip service style condemnation, the classic sort of grandstanding that you see in British Parliament's CF Oxford Union debates. 
and then on the other hand, the deals would continue. Life continues as usual. Business is normal. Business is not normal, however, when it comes to the other side of the Atlantic. So here we, we're looking at the States. And obviously, with our favorite orange in charge of the White House, uh, there's only one orange that could be in charge. Uh, it, it depends heavily on whether or not I think Trump's here to stay. Because if he, indeed it is the case that he remains in office for another four years, uh, then the price to pay for US-China relations would be incredibly hefty, independent of, indeed, probably irrespective of any attempts to mass diplomatize on a part of China. But if Biden comes in, I'd be intrigued to hear thoughts here as well. I'd be more optimistic because ultimately given the intractable differences and despite rather the intractable differences between China and America, I personally am of the view that the best and only way through which such differences can be resolved, can be trenchantly articulated, debated and fundamentally mediated between is when countries or both of these countries do not see each other as they do in Thucydides' trap i.e. as threats to eliminate. Now, I'm not a Kishore Mahbubani, so I'm not that optimistic. And I also have perhaps less time than he does for my own country. But I must nevertheless stress that if hostility and bellicosity becomes a dominant tone in US-China relations, and I fear for the world uh, in which that becomes the only reality and the only course of action. I guess I have a question. Oh, sorry. Only fine, Amanda. If you you, if you want to go for it, go for it. Um, like specifically regarding, I guess like medical aid. And I'm trying to think of like other examples where, like maybe it's more specifically regarding like, um, like for example, U.S. like pharmaceutical diplomacy, like in the 20th century, and like I know India has recently kind of been in the news with regards to like it's e, it's I think it's like an Ebola or anti-malaria vaccine. Um, and like shipping that in the United uh, to like the United States and other countries mm-hmm. um, during this pandemic. So I'm curious how you see, I guess, like medical supplies in China being maybe different from these other test cases of also kind of medical supplies, maybe more specifically related to or and, and, and examples where we can draw maybe more clear comparisons between the two. Yeah, so I'm not entirely sure of that if there's that much difference. To be honest, I think I guess the difference I'll say is. We have to bear in mind that China is in a very politically unique position here, right? Because whilst it is often tooted as a contender, but in no way a clear substitute, if at all, and even the most pro-China or most optimistic about China folk to a degree, it is no substitute or replacement for America today. It's not going to overtake America militarily, at least over the next five years or so. But at the same time, its unique positioning as currently the most populous country on earth, the second largest economy, and if you're counting it by purchasing power, parity, PPP, you're probably looking at, indeed, the largest economy in the world, uh, some would say, that it is in a precarious position, where because of how large it is, and how cumbersome it is, it is also viewed as a potential universal threat under increasing sentiments that ostracize and alienate or typecast China's threat. This is not to say, the same thing cannot be said of many of these other countries that we're talking about that are also engaged in mass diplomacy, that are also engaged in sending out mass and medical supplies and testing kits and all of that. But I think the, the key difference here is that China is playing a complex game that is both defensive, responsive, and also in many ways distractionary. Whereas the intersharing and pooling of medical resources and all of these other cases, I think, 
might well be motivated by soft power driven motivations, but is in no way as aggressively, as explicitly, and as extensively pursued, or indeed framed as a dominant media strategy. Uh, it's, it's just not on the same level, or same scale, or to the same degree as has been pursued by China over the past few months. I, I guess that's my rejoinder or, or response. So we've talked about through this podcast some of China's goals in mask diplomacy. Um, and we've talked about, for example, internal goals as well as external goals. And so my question following on that is, um, do you think China's goals in mask diplomacy are being achieved? That's a very good question. And in all honesty, I'd say it really depends where. It really depends by how much you mean achievement should be measured. So if we're talking about, say, again, as I said just then, the, the, the second track Europe or the track to Europe plus uh, countries that are not in the European Union that have received mass diplomacy, I think it's working out quite fine. So Serbia is a case in point. Have you seen the uh, very interesting billboard that says, uh, uh, that basically uh, characterizes for those who don't speak Mandarin, Xi Jinping as, as the big brother. Uh, of course he's the big brother. Anyway, so, so that, that's uh, Serbia for you. And then you also have pretty favorable reception in Italy. Indeed, I think a group of Italian singers made this MV to thank China. And there's a lot of goodwill amongst the public there. But if we're looking at rehabilitating the imagery China or the images of China amongst leadership, amongst officials, amongst the politicians of these countries. Again, I think the subset there shrinks. So the subset of favorable politician elite attitudes towards China is smaller than a subset of mass attitudes or countries with favorable mass attitudes towards China as a result of mass diplomacy. And let's not forget that existing outside both of these subsets are the whole roster of Western liberal democracies that are very eagerly or very viciously and vindictively looking for justifications to pursue escalation in response to China in its diplomacy. So I don't think China succeeded. I also don't think China has won the hearts and minds of the elites, if that were indeed the metric. So that therefore cannot be said to have succeeded. But if we only understand and take its aims as more modestly, the winning back or the currying of favors from the masses, the public, then I think China would probably and could probably be said to have achieved more success in that light, uh, in that particular definition. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, always like determining exactly what the outcome of a public diplomacy campaign is. Like, oh, absolutely. Is affecting it's people. so hard to test for the causal relations as well. Right. I think it's difficult. Well, from that end, I think that's about it from us, Brian, is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about mass diplomacy that they absolutely have to know before we wrap up? No, uh, not much from me. I just hope that this uh, series or this episode, sorry, not series, this episode has not masked your enthusiasm for uh, learning more about mass diplomacy. And I'd be very wary of uh, my speech potentially having had that effect. And indeed, I, I, I hope we could inject some uh, excitement into your you're listening. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get all the latest Hopkins POFA news. We hope to see you next time.